0: There's a man named Steve Percaro who, in the early 80s, had a young daughter. She came home from school sad that a boy had hit her during recess. She asked her dad, why would he do such a thing? Steve struggled, as a young dad, to explain why the boy did this. And especially the perplexing psychology of the fact that the boy probably had a crush on her. He said, why? It's just human nature. Then he wrote a song about it which he intended for his band Toto to play, but Quincy Jones heard it first and wanted Michael Jackson to record it. And then they changed the lyrics so that it was about the allure of romance and nightlife in the city. If they say- The term human nature finds itself attached to a broad range of ideas. One simple way to talk about human nature might be to ask the question, what is it that comes naturally to humans? But you can imagine what a Pandora's box that question could be, especially when you start to ask, what does natural even mean? What characteristics or qualities are common to all humans? Scientists, philosophers, and theologians have been throwing around ideas for thousands of years. Christian theology, broadly speaking, affirms that humanity was created by a loving God and bears that God's likeness. Sadly, we all inevitably sin and eventually die. Jesus Christ, the God-human, offers help for this problem. Some kind of remedy has been revealed to us in Him. But sorting out the details of all this can get complicated. And when we develop out our ideas about God and God's work in the world, we often build them to include empirical claims about how people typically think, how people typically act, how people typically respond to certain things. So, that little boy who behaved aggressively to Steve Percaro's daughter, what factors led him to act like that? And particularly, if he did like her, why wouldn't he behave with kindness? Was there something about his biology that made him act aggressively? Or was it modeled for him at his home, or both? How much can we fault him if his testosterone levels were spiking and his parents were abusive? Do we still call that sin? Would an experience of God help him change his behavior? What kind of experience? Should the little girl forgive him? How? What if he's not sorry? What's the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? How similar or different is human forgiveness from God's forgiveness? Maybe if we look a little deeper, we can gain some insight into why we are the way we are. What capacity do we have to change? And how can ancient theological truths connect with our experience of life in the world? Here's the first part of my conversation with Dr. Cutter Calloway. He's a professor of theology and a PhD candidate in psych science as well. Learn more about his work engaging culture and psychology at CutterCalloway.com. In this conversation, we'll talk through some of the most salient aspects of being human in the cognitive sciences today. There are five E's, embodied... Extended, embedded, enacted, and emergent. Let's dive in. Okay, I'm just gonna say I'm here. I'm I'm blessed to be here with Dr. Cutter Calloway, <laughs> <laughs> who is our esteemed academic contributor for the TheoPsych project. Esteemed. That's your title, right?
1: That's right.
0: That's right. Esteemed is in there, and it's good because it's an e word.
1: That's right. And.
0: We're going to be talking about a lot of E words today.
1: A lot of E's. I'm probably a pastor, so I I have to have uh, alliteration. (laughs)
0: That's right. That's right. So where should we start? You know, E is the most popular letter in the English alphabet, and it's the letter on your keyboard that is probably most worn down because of that.
1: Mine are S, D, and C as I look at it right now, but I'll i'll take I'll take that. Uh,
0: oh, the- yeah, my s is looking a little weary, ah. so is my O. Okay, that's neither here nor there, yeah, I mean,
1: I think you know as we're thinking about how to do let's say science engaged theology or more specifically in this case, psychologically science engaged theology, I've just been uh, struck by the the helpfulness of people who are working in the realm of sort of the big umbrella term of embodied cognition. So there's the big there's the big E, and if you start with that E, the the embodied part, it can go in a lot of different directions and has a lot of different implications. One of which is an extended notion of human cognition, I and mean, we can talk a bit about the other E's that follow from there. But but that's why we're we're talking about the the value of the E. Is there there are a number of E's that are related to cognition that start with uh, human embodiment, and of course, as theologians, Christian theologians who ostensibly are all about the incarnation, which is a very bodily thing. This should be kind of at the at the foreground of what we think about what it means to be human, what it means for Jesus to be human, and then maybe what it means for the larger community of of people who identify with this faith um, as being a body, right? A corporate body. So that's really kind of my interest in why I find it helpful.
0: Right. Do you think so you're a theologian and you are working on your, your other PhD in psychology or wait, is it a PsyD? Is that what do we, are, we
1: call it? No, it's a, it's a PhD in psychological science. Most PsyDs I think are, are more uh, clinically.
0: For clinical. Okay. Right. I get it mixed up. That's right. So as you, as you've been going through your psychology research and learning, was that Was that a key takeaway, a big takeaway for just the extreme embodied nature of being human? Was that?
1: Yes, I think. So I went into it with some assumptions about bodies. And depending on who you talk to or who I talk to anyway, in the the theology realm, there are different implications as well. And so one, one sort of live question in the theology realm is not necessarily whether or not bodies matter or how deeply embodied we are but whether or not or how the body relates to some other thing and that other thing is often referred to as a soul or a mind depending upon how like theistic or metaphysical you get and so one of the kind of contentions right now within a number of of different disciplines is um, the degree to which we're talking when you're talking about a human i mean human nature if we're talking about two things and well and in the tradition, three things like—is it a tripartite thing where it's a, a body, a, a spirit, and a soul? You know these sort of mm. uh, mm-hmm. things. And then, how do those relate to one another? So, I think I went in going, I'm, I'm sensitive or not sensitive to. I'm inclined toward a more embodied view of human nature, but the degree to which there is something that it emerges beyond or or emerges from the body. And how we think of that as separable from the body or not? Mm-hmm. I think I've 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 now come. I I joke. If you want to know how I identify, now that I've gone through <laughs> a little bit more, is a I'm currently at the point where I'm willing to say I am a multidimensional, linguistically plural, dual aspect monist. <laughs> um, oh
0: my gosh! I know. I know. <laughs> um, and so uh, basically,
1: what 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 that means is. There are folks who would say, you know, when it comes to the body, this would be both psychologists, you know, neuroscientists, and then also theologians, right? There's a, there's similar kind of categories. And one would be a group that are basically dualists. And and what, what we mean by that is there is the human body, and then there is this other thing. It's, the, it's our cognition, it's our thought, our mind, our mental life. That would be a more sort of dualist picture in a very kind of re- reductive sort of way of describing it. A more monist picture would be it's we're just this, right? Like this is this is everything. Here it is. And both sides sort of accuse each other of being reductive. You know, that's that's the common accusation, like, ah, you're being, you know, reductive or eliminative. And I try to my my goal is to not say, I want to keep the best of both of those because they both have some problems in my mind, but to really kind of say where does the the psych science, the neuroscience lead us? And what are the implications of that for theology and our understanding of of the human person? So to, back to answering your core question of did I kind of come to an awareness of the deeply embodied nature? I think what I came to an awareness of is a a need for probably a a refined understanding or a com, a complexification of our understanding of of the body and its relationship to the higher order processes. So right. if- that's what I've kind of have grown in in my understanding.
0: Right. And almost any sort of topic around thinking, cognition, the mind seems to have a physical component. Like the example I'm thinking of that, and this is just something that was surprising or interesting to me, like in our third seminar, which was talking a lot of, about positive psych and yeah. forgiveness and even forgiveness there's something about our embodiment that makes it easier or less easy for us to forgive like there are genes that actually make it easier or more difficult for us to engage in that virtue if you want to put it that way and that's not the only factor of course because humans are complex beings but just stuff like that along the way that it seems like there were genetic or physically physical factors that that influence things like that virtues and
1: Well and that's the other I think thing that I've continued to sort of explore and think about is so as we think about our bodies, right? How bounded we are to them or not, right? So I think one thing that I've shifted on is or or I I don't know if shift is the right word, but that our bodies are really the anchor or the center around which our person revolves, right? And I say that because to your point, that means that it becomes very difficult for me to go, there are clear distinctions and boundaries that are set up between me and you right now there are i mean like for all intents and purposes we can say there is a a person called sari and there's a person called cutter but what we need to acknowledge and be aware of is that those distinctions blur very quickly in terms of how much you influence me and vice versa how much our human bodies are informed by the 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 physical non-human bodies around us, let's say animals, other living organisms, our environment and all of those those sort of you know epigenetic factors influence our bodies in a really profound way such that it gets what you're describing it's it you can become capacitated or incapacitated in ways that are on a bodily level realized or enacted and whether it's forgiveness or any of these other things, one of the a big part, it's not forgiveness, but is trauma research, right? That that trauma is the kind of thing that you hold in your body. And most of the therapies are embodied forms of of therapeutics. And so to say I suffer from post-traumatic stress, part of what we've seen is, is being successful is saying like I'm going to practice centering and grounding practices that actually reinstate my understanding or my narrative of who I am in my body right now. This body in the past hurt me, violated me, whatever, traumatized this connection between myself and my body in that sense. And so, yeah, if we think about mm. forgiveness or virtues or healing or anything like that, I've I've been really struck by how deeply implicated we are in not just our own bodies, but then how interconnected and enmeshed we are to these other bodies, both in terms of how we uh, can help each other, and then also how we can prevent each other from
0: flourishing. Really, so is that leading us into the extended cognition? Sure. Yeah. Territory. Uh, so yeah. So we've been talking about embodied, and the other E is extended.
1: Yeah. So there's this whole uh, realm of literature, and some of this comes a little bit more out of a sort of philosophy of mind, and and what's interesting about the <laughs> the psych science that I find is these sort of different models of of cognition, right, of thinking, and a lot of the sort of cutting-edge research in human cognition emerged from (laughs) findings from artificial intelligence development, right, so it was machine computer technologies that that people were trying to essentially design a thing that could think and act and process information like a human, right, and so you'd you'd find all these things about computer processing that then you would infer to say, well, maybe this is how human cognition works, right? And so you can have an embodied view of, of human cognition that would not allow for the kind of extension that some others would be open to. And what I mean by that would be, let's say, as you just said, like every sort of mental process or activity has some bodily basis. No one's, no one's really you know, discounting that. But what you could say is, for example, it's still how it's brain bound, right? Like you could say it's all of my mental activity is bound up in the, like the tissue of my brain. And that's where it all happens. And so if we're talking about mental life activity, we're really talking about that, that thing, that flesh or not the flesh bag, the Mm -hmm. the bucket, the bucket inside my flesh bag. Right. Um, (laughs) And, and so one of Andy Clark is, is one person who uh, does a lot of work in this area who basically says, okay, well, let's do some thought experiments, right? So your body matters and an embodied cognition is sort of our starting point. But what if we're not brain bound or bodily bound, but instead back to what I was saying before, like what if the center, if we're, it's like a centered set and it extends through various realms. And he said he has this character called Otto and Otto has a notebook. Otto has Alzheimer's disease uh, disease. And so he suffers from memory loss. Right. And so he has taken up a practice where he writes down in his notebook the directions to the grocery store. And he knows it's his handwriting in his notebook and he writes it down. And so every time he goes to go to the grocery store, he can't remember how to get there in his, in his brain. So he refers to his notebook and goes, ah, that's how I get to the grocery store. And he goes there. And so what, what Andy Clark says is, how is that operation any different than what would happen normally if you could recall that information? There's no real technical or philosophical distinction as we start thinking about our cognition between this sort of tool that we use and the very me- various mechanisms in our brain. And so if you if you can grant that, and some people don't, they go, that's something else or whatever, you start going, well, in most of our life, we take up these, these different tools and these different prosthetics and these different techniques that allow us to offload our cognition in ways that are Extend outside of our bodies, and so the question becomes well, how far can that extension go? What does it imply, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera? And I just find it a, a really fascinating thing in part because we we do this naturally all the time, right nowadays, especially with the tools and technologies that we come up with. so you know my phone right. has has google maps on it and and I just trust it implicitly i <laughs> I go to it and i I go. I don't have to worry about how to get somewhere or where, you know. Yeah, that's the thing, and you know, right. you hear- and
0: even you can have something called Google on that tiny little device that's almost always on your person somewhere, where you could ask it anything and get the answer, almost anything.
1: <laughs> and, and it's really interesting too. I mean, and the the, the boundaries get a little blurred. So uh, Andy Clark would say, "Our it's our cognition and our our cognitive processes that are extended." The other element of this is our our bodies somehow can be extended to, like how we think of the body. So in terms of like prosthetics and things, right? So now we're getting pretty close to this thing being a prosthetic, really.
0: Right. And I mean, that's the thing. It kind of acti- probably activates a disgust response to think about stuff like that, because Having it in your pocket constantly isn't really that different from if you had like an implant where in your head or in your ear, where you could just talk and it would tell you the information in your ear, you know, and, but you're like, Ooh, but it's, if it's implanted in your body, you're getting too much like the Borg with Star Trek, you know,
1: (laughs) but. And and that's where you have, is it Catherine Hiles, I think is her name, wrote a a, a mm -hmm. book that, It's something like the post-human or, you know, basically we're already cyborgs, right? That that we're already there in the sense that exactly what you're describing. I mean, people describe the sort of a phantom limb experience when they don't have their iPhone. I've got it. There are also actual prosthetics that are, that that sort of leverage this mental capacity. So not only are there now prosthetics that they're experimenting with, uh, tapping into our actual sort of neural network where you're controlling them with your mind but but it becomes incorporated into your bodily schema in a way that it's actually at a at a neurobiological level connected to you right mm-hmm. and then that question becomes okay now how how far does that go interesting realm <laughs> that you can go down
0: yeah there's um, a lot of ethical questions around this area yeah exactly. but let's i I want to quickly connect it to the conversation of human nature yes. it seems like w- human beings are and have maybe always been inclined to you know exist in this extended cog- cognitive way yeah, yeah i what think, do you think that's
1: of that exactly right and i think that's the you know both the good and the bad of the current moment right that you you say on the one hand this is not new right mm-hmm. this is just us follow this is just a new technology or a new possibility but the fact that we would incorporate our tools into our, our ways of being and interacting with the world is just what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Now, I do think this is where a, a, a theological vision is helpful because what you'll see in the literature and in the science, well, and, and especially if it's empirical science, whatever, there's this, I think, false assumption that there is no there are no metaphysical things in play there's no for example telos there's no end direction ultimately that we're aiming any of this stuff and so it that's a problem because then you go well when you get down to the level of well should you implant you know <laughs> something in your ear eye you know the the should is implies an and a direction right that that we mm-hmm. would think here's where humans are going here's how humans are developing here's what's good or bad for humans if you can't identify kind of the direction that that your technology or your understanding of the human is, is aiming or going, it's really hard to answer some of those questions. So I think theology has a really uh, helpful way of coming in and going, okay, we're not just describing what it means to be human or, or describing what it means to be human. We're actually positing a, a direction for human growth and development that that helps us answer and think about some of these things in important ways.
0: Well, the environment, I mean, that's a very vague term, but the environment or the culture, or maybe you can help me refine what I'm trying to say, seems to give the new technologies direction. So I don't know, at one point, the technologies were scrolls and people were writing things on scrolls so that the knowledge and the historical events that were happening could be passed on to future generations and that the their ancestors could remember certain things that happened through scrolls or just having using a rock as a tool to <laughs> hunt or something like that there are things like that and this and there were maybe you know goals that were you know influenced by survival and flourishing or whatever there's there we could talk about what those were in our current environment, it seems like a lot of these advances, the direction, that telos is teaching us to be consumers and to sell to us. Like, you know, there was a lot of buzz about that. What was it called? The documentary about... Oh, uh, Social Dilemma. Yeah, Social Dilemma. Yeah. So in Social Dilemma, there was a lot of buzz about that. And all these AI algorithms, they, ha- mm-hmm. they were trained to work in such a way to sell us things. And to get really, really smart at identifying what type of people would want to buy what kind of stuff, yeah. and it's now forming us. It's it's, yeah. you know, and so can we? Can and that's going to be the default, I think, because you know, the, that's that's the culture yeah. we live in. That's the economics, <laughs> economic but factors.
1: I think what you're getting at, or maybe a couple things. One is the influence of the niche, right? The 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 niche mm-hmm. that shapes us just as we shape it. So any tool we create, any way we extend our the human into the environment and to others has a a return effect. And we sort of co-create this niche together. Yes. And I think also any of these technologies or these directions we go do actually have, they are directed. The question is whether or not we acknowledge that direction, right? So the danger isn't necessarily just that, let's say social media has a direction. It's to convince us that it doesn't, right? That it's just a tool. It's just a neutral thing, right? So the importance is coming and going like, no, no, no. It, it has a direction. What is it? And where is it leading us? And how is it shaping us? Is it enhancing our ability to, to navigate this niche? Or is it actually destructive? But you can't actually answer that question unless you can say, well, here's not only where it's taking us, but here's where we would like to go as humans, right? Here's why we would develop these technologies, et cetera. And so yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right there and and that is one of the helpful things of both acknowledging the extension of the human means in a space a digital space or whatever that that we're actually shaping what it means to be human. This isn't just a sort of frivolous fun social media digital thing no no, we're actually profoundly forming our bodily life in the world through these forms of extension. so that's one thing and then the that helps us realize that and then the second thing is well if that's the case then it, what you're pointing at is it really just to get us to consume more things and how do we how do we think about cognitive extension in a way that that could actually lead to flourishing as opposed to uh destruction and if you watch social dilemma you'll walk away thinking well it's just completely horrible and it's destroyed.
0: 100% yeah yeah <laughs> yeah maybe overly negative um maybe there's a way to sort of balance
1: one thing that i that i think through is so let's say what what is the end if you're going to try to say cognitive extension so we're embodied and then we're extended if what we're about is human society and the flourishing of of our human groups and the niches that we inhabit both small and then globally right like the ecology i, I think what i sort of skew towards is to say well part of the way we can think about that is do our various technologies and the tools we take up into these uh, different kinds of processes, does it lead us toward other human relationality or does it lead us away from that? So I wouldn't want to just say social media equals bad. I would say, does this form of extension, cognitive extension, lead me toward or away, or toward or away from a, an embodied relationship with other humans? Mm-hmm. And that's where I, as then a Christian theologian, come back to this is why the body does matter very much, not just because of the psych science, but because once you theoretically detach from the body, you're doing something, maybe, but you're doing something different. It, you, it, this notion that you could pluck up the human mind and plop it onto a technological substrate, to me, is nonsensical. And now, again, there'd be both theologians and transhumanists that would disagree <laughs> with me, but I, I think at that point, you could, you know, let's say Cutter's mind could be put onto some machine and live for eternity. That could happen, but maybe theoretically, but it wouldn't be the human, it wouldn't be a human thing. We wouldn't be mm-hmm. talking about nature. It'd be something different. And I want to kind of go all in on, on humanness. Warren Brown, who's a <laughs> colleague of mine and I've studied with, you know, he often will say it's, you know, if you think about that, like I'm, I'm plucking up my mind as if it's like on social media or something without my body. I mean, you couldn't put your brain in an elephant. And in terms of the what, what we understand about the embodied nature of cognition in the brain, you it's not like it would just be me with an elephant body. That would be something different because our bodies are so implicated into how we perceive and understand the world that that you would no longer be a you. You would no longer be a human. Mm-hmm. You you would be something else. And so some of the stuff is more science fiction of thinking through like-
0: Sure, it's a thought experiment. Mm-hmm. My
1: brain and a robot body or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, again, an important reminder of, of that. And then it actually leads to our other, this other E, right? So-
0: Are you moving to Enacted.
1: Well, enacted or embedding. So All okay. right.
0: We, oh, you're, we're still on embedding because we started yeah. talking about ni- ni- niche. Some people say niche. Some people say niche.
1: <laughs> you know, um, I had a, in, in undergrad, I had an anthropology professor, and for some reason, every time he would say it, he would say two different words. He'd be like, "And you know, this." He'd say critters. He's like, "And then this critter, it emerges in its own little niche or niche." And I'm like just pick one but every single time he would say both and i'm like i don't know what what's what's up with that yes niche or niche. yes
0: and i also i have no idea what soft coupling is so oh, go um, ahead and lo- launch into embeddedness yeah. of humans and explain some of those ideas
1: well so okay if we're embodied that meaning it's sort of the anchor around which all of our thinking feeling you know person revolves we extend beyond just the what we perceive to be this this flesh bag i keep calling it but then to our your point of the, the sort of environments, the, the niches that we create, we're embedded in, it, in, in in important ways that inform our bodies and our personhood, meaning a lot of what we understand to be the human is what it means to be kind of a, a upright-walking, bipedal, forward-eyes uh, creature that inhabits a certain kind of environment. We can count on the actual concrete elements of that environment in terms of how we understand the way we've developed and continue to develop. So when we tinker with that environment, it it tinkers with us. Jeep had a good slogan back a few years ago. Like, I think it's what we make makes us. Now, what that has to do with why I need to buy Jeep Wrangler, I don't know, but (laughs) maybe something about adventure.
0: Now their slogan is Jeep. There's (laughs) only one.
1: Oh, there's only one. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, there's
0: only one company called Jeep, okay. So maybe, got it.
1: <laughs> maybe they were thinking like you can go trailblaze and you're you're like setting down tracks and that, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, but it's true, right? That that the way we shape our environment shapes us. And and maybe not the us now, but especially our progeny, right? Like we're shaping the environment that our ancestors will inherit and will have evolved to adapt to, right? And so we're kind of creating the conditions that will exert these pressures on, on people to come. And so we're we're definitely embedded in that sense that we're always responding to the environment and the way that we come to view ourselves, the way we think, the way we perceive. And that's, that's kind of the embedded part, which we kind of already covered a little bit. Then when it goes to enacted, this I actually think is one of the most fascinating things that in some ways works very well with my kind of I come from a theological tradition that aligns more with kind of critical the, or not well critical theory but continental philosophy than the analytic side of things and and that would suggest that our perceiving of the world actually constructs the world right because we have this sort of these perceptual capacities let's talk about there's a lot a lot of stuff that's been done on visual perception but there are motor perceptual operations to get us to just see that are deeply embodied that are irreducibly connected to the sort of physical perceptual system known as the human person but we don't simply this both is the embedded and the enacted thing we don't simply it's not like a screen you know we have like a, a a movie screen on the back of our brain that we passively receive data from the environment and we just it just hits us and we go oh there it is right we're actually actively creating what it is we perceive in the process of doing it. And so there's all these interesting studies on the, the the biases, the visual biases, the visual blindnesses that we have, the things that we choose. Well, we don't know. None of this is conscious to us that we can and cannot focus on down from like the color spectrum to the actual objects that are in our view. So there's these fascinating studies where <laughs> they'll have people focus on, on groups of people and then like a dude in a... A monkey suit, like an actual ape suit, will slowly walk across the screen, and the researchers will ask later, like, okay, so when did the man in the ape suit walk across the screen? They're like, there was no man in the ape suit. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, these obvious things where you go, clearly what's in front of you, you should have seen, but but there's no sense in which you registered. And that's because, in large part, we're actively constructing even the the, the data that we receive from our environment is happens in relationship to that environment. The enacted Which, part. Oh, go ahead.
0: Via via our expectations of the spectrum of things we might see at any given yeah. moment. Mm, well,
1: yeah. a lot of it is how, what it. In what use is the environment to me? Right. Mm. So we've learned to perceive the things that are most salient for us. So how do I, you know, for example, stay balanced? <laughs> how do I how do I perceive threats in my environment? How do I see opportunities? Right. So, what are the things that will help me navigate this this terrain in the most efficient way right? Like all of these things come into play with, okay, now my brain that's in my body using these you know openings are actively constructing then the things that get filtered through into whatever I would call my mind right mm-hmm. um, It also comes out in the way we actually perceive for example it's 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 not just an interpretation right it's not like i just go oh i think that what i saw was more positive than negative right like it the 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 scene that i just saw unfold you know that that woman yelling at that man she was mad at him another person might say no she was yelling to keep him from walking into traffic you know something like that Mm -hmm. it's not an interpretation like that that is part of it the fact that our, we're enacted is when I, for example, you could say you have people perceive the, 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 the tilt of a hill, of a landscape, and you put them under physical duress. So now their bodies are more exhausted or less exhausted, and they will perceive the actual incline or decline of a hill differently. So I and and it has to do with whether or not I can get my body up this hill. <laughs> All of a sudden my perception of the hill changes based upon my bodily situation. And and that to me is a really fascinating thing because most of the time when we think about whether we're embodied or not, we assume we're walking around getting this sort of like objective read of reality, right? And then we interpret it according to some lens. Well, no, right. we're not even we're not even perceiving all of reality. <laughs> We're perceiving yeah. that that in our environment, which we can act and enact in, in, according to its affordances. How does it afford action uh, to me? And, and that to me, I think is one of the, I still haven't followed through all of the implications of that theologically or philosophically, but it is one of the, the things that I go, oh, uh, it was sort of a new way of thinking about embodied cognition.
0: It at least makes you want to be... <laughs> need to be more humble about when you, when you think you're being objective or stating facts because that would be, even be true you gave the example of like a physical landscape but also maybe in a social situation or a group of people like we're we're always making those perceptive judgments about other people and whether or not they're aggressive towards us or friendly or hospitable we're always making those types of assessments based on subtle cues and nonverbal communication and stuff like that too so and we're, that based on where we're coming from and our, our you know all kinds of contextual factors the yeah. culture we grew up in we're going to see things differently
1: yeah yeah, I mean, there's, uh, and this is where you get back to the kind of the universality and the particularity of things, right? And and this is why n- niches and embeddedness to me come into play because there's a certain response that we all have to say like the whites of people's eyes, right? Or certain sort of facial structures that we'll, we'll find beautiful or not. You know, there's um, uh, a lot of studies that are done on different sort of what are Quote unquote disfigured faces, right? And how people assess like the moral virtue of those people or whatever based purely on mm-hmm. those sort of things. But then it also comes down to like racial and gender type things in terms of how you assess, how you perceive threats, how you understand intelligence, how you, you know, all of these implicit assumptions that are that everyone walks around with, but they're activated and primed depending upon these different environmental cues. And over time, because our niche is 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 actually constructing us along with us constructing it. We these various societies crop up where you have different tribal alliances that would make sense when you go I see a person that's an outsider to my tribe, I respond to those people differently. It's also interesting that sort of our our degree of perceptual fine-grained perceptual analysis is shown to be much different with people who appear to look like us versus people who don't, right? So, I can tell, for example, I could tell you, and I'm not saying me individually, but on the whole, you get a bunch of white guys like me in a room <laughs> looking mm-hmm. at differences. And white guys like me tend to be able to more fine grained tuned tell differences between white male faces than, let's say, black female faces or Asian American, mm-hmm. you know, these sort of things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's all it comes up with, yeah, this need to say, well, I need a humility before reality, but I especially need a humility before the data. And we've seen a number of of things like this, especially with artificial intelligence and facial mapping of even the creation of these algorithms that are supposed to go and get a sort of baseline human read have skewed largely towards European male faces, right? Where they literally, the AI we've designed doesn't compute faces that aren't You know, aligned with a sort of white European male, and that's fascinating to me because we've convinced ourselves in some ways, oh no, the this is a sort of objective algorithm, right? It's not right, but it it actually is skewed according to again these bodies that are creating the technology that are creating those things. Um, with all of
0: these, yeah, with all these aspects of human nature, it's interesting because it's the sometimes you kind of need to learn to work with those parts of human nature for like. I realize that I I'm working with my psychology, so I'm going to drink more water if I make a fill up a huge jug of water and put it next to me so that because if I have to get up and like what well, during my work day to go, you know, or yes. I actually just got like a little elliptical foot peddler that goes oh. under my desk because yes. I realize I'm not going to wake up an hour earlier to work out. So if I put this yeah. pedal, then it's like, I'm just altering my environment in order to be and do, be the person I want to be and do the things yeah. I want to do. You know, yeah. that's an example of like working with the, this cognition, the psychology, but some of these things evolved to be useful at some point in time and yeah. are, now actually need to be pushed back against. Yeah. And I think that, theological and spiritual realm can be really useful in sort of pushing back against some of those aspects of our psychology that aren't that we we'd like to get rid of like some of the the excessive tribalism and all those types of things well
1: there's this fascinating paradox on that specifically and and you think you know if we're going to talk narrow down to like christian theology for example you know, Jesus was involved in a time of, of hyper-tribal identity, right? (laughs) Not just within the various groups that lived within the broader Roman empire, but even within the people that descended from, you know, Abraham, right? That identified with Abraham as their forefather. You have all these different, like, intense tribal disparities, and Jesus' primary call was to do the opposite. Like, don't yeah. do what we've always done here when it comes to a Samaritan or a Gentile or you know so forth and so on, and it's it's odd because what Jesus is saying, and I think as you know theology is trying to like get us to imagine the best of us, right? Religion can be leveraged for very tribal reasons too. That's the kind it of can
0: I, be, yeah, yeah. That's a good clarification for sure.
1: And the reason is because there is still a value in tribal identity, right? Like there is value in getting a group together and um, having them identify, having them be cohesive, having them sort of, re- you know, this would be like the yeah. best the best of, of team sports, right? You yeah. need to be able to get together a, a rallying cry of like, yes, we're going to be X, you know, those same mechanisms, those same psychological mechanisms that allow you to do that are the very same ones that, would create extreme prejudice um, against others, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, outsider of the non-tribal, and this is uniquely a, a problem, um, or a problem, a an issue, a complexity in current sort of uh, globalized world, right? In a world now, it's really very recently that we literally are finding out news about everyone all across the planet all the time, that we're even confronted with various levels of otherness, quote unquote, that before humans just really never did. I mean, you really did just inhabit a realm where most of the people were kind of, relatively speaking, in your tribe, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh,
0: and yeah, now- and you would only, you would only learn about trouble in other tribes if someone yeah. came and visited and yeah, yeah. seemed friendly uh, and they told you about it in their limited yeah. experience. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, There's all those sort of mechanisms, you know, societally that you could have to welcome the outsiders, et cetera. But in terms of just ongoingly, like the way we as individuals and as our sort of communal communities expand, the way that we have to constantly navigate that in many ways, our sort of embodied mental processes haven't caught up. we're We're not equipped. And so that's to your point of, on the one hand, we want to do our best to set ourselves up for success. On the other hand, there's moments where we go, there's a problem here. And the 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 best and this, I, I think, you know, Justin Barrett and Pam King, I think are onto something and saying, part of the task is sort of realigning our built in sort of capacities with our niche, like, where is it that we're at now, we got to get a good read of the situation, so that we understand what sort of mechanisms we need to kind of push against and what we need to kind of lean mm-hmm. into. And mm-hmm. maybe, it's the same thing and depending upon the context you're doing it slightly differently right
0: right Uh, well okay i don't want to get too far i mean we're i did want to talk about emergent it was your your fifth e so i am really interested to see what you have to say about that
1: well so another aspect of sort of embodiedness right and if we're going to say cognition is embodied That's the sort of core starting point, and that you can extend, et cetera, you're you're embedded, all these other things. The other element is that part of, from a a neurological level on up, and I don't even like that metaphor, down and up, but I'll use it for now. We emerge, our, our cognition is something that is, I believe, a higher order property of an emergent system. So the human in many ways is a complex emergent system that operates according to other complex emergent systems. So for example, a good example that, that people will often use is are ants, right? So you have this anthill and ants individually don't have some kind of like grandmaster plan. <laughs> They're primarily driven by like scent, I think. I think even pheromones is, is how they kind of operate and respond. And What's fascinating is they're incredibly effective as an aggregate, right? And the aggregate sort of ant hills and things in the processes that they participate in are not the result of individual ants agency saying, I'm gonna partner with my fellow ants and then we're gonna partner with a few more and we're gonna go for this thing here, right? And, and you can see this if you go and you like, you know, step on, if you're a bully, right? One of those, if you're Sid from Toy Story and you like kick an anthill, and you see them disperse for a while, and they're like kind of out of order, and then they kind of like reshape, and over time kind of get back in order, that's in part because complex systems theory would say that if it's a complex system, you have top-down organizing forces that coordinate the agency of the whole, right? And this is kind of counterintuitive. It doesn't, we don't like to think in this way. But it's to say no individual element on its own is doing the thing that we're talking about that's top-down. But when taken together, they actually are, you could talk about it as a a kind of directed agent with an anthill. If you could think of it the same way as humans, the reductive monists that I talked about earlier will often say that basically it all comes down to the way that your neurons fire, right? And the implication with that is then nothing—it's nothing buttery, as you say. Like this is the human is nothing but its sort of neural chemical response to the world, and and on one level you say, well, it always involves that. It's nothing less than that. But how do you describe these higher order things? How do you describe the fact that what you you just said, like I can somehow this agent known as Cutter can go, I'm going to put foot pedals down here, and I'm going to pedal them. <laughs> And that actually has implications downstream for what my neurons do, right? So it's, it's both and. At the same time, it's emergent in the sense that I don't believe that, and I think this is where the, the, the science backs it up, I don't think there's ever this point where our thinking selves, this complex emergent dynamic that has top-down causal influence, gets detached from our neurobiological substrate. I don't think there's a way that all of a sudden it can float out here again on whether it's an, a technological substrate or some other one. I don't think that's helpful. Once and that's where some of the you know the crazy transhumanists or whatever cra- I didn't that sounded bad. I don't think they're all crazy. The the, the most irresponsible transhumanists, it just doesn't make sense to me anymore. Because some people would have asked, like, well, how far is too far when we think of extended cognition? How far can the human emerge? And I, I'm like, well, that's only a question that makes any sense if you think you can detach your thinking self from your body. If you go back and go, that's not even possible, well, then it's not a matter, again, of how far you extend away or how what emergence looks like. It's more the question of, again, back to flourishing, like to what degree does this emergence, um, this extension lead you to flourishing? But the the emergence thing is really just to say, it's not just that we're embodied, but our very sense of self is something that that emerges from out of these lower level complex interactions, both neurological, biological, sociological, cultural, all these different things. And that's even back to how we're embedded in our niche, how we're interacting with our tools, how we're interacting with other humans, all of that works together at a a complex systems level that gives rise to our sense of who we are as humans.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Blueprint 1543. Learn more about our mission, vision, and resources at blueprint1543.org. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion.